RNC. I am your host, Mike Gaston. Thanks for joining me today. Very excited. This is episode number 64. We're on Sunday, October 11th, and I have a very special uh, guest today. And, and not only that, but this is kind of a, a, one, a, a first time for us. We've never had a live guest. I've done guests before. When I first started the podcast, we had some guests on that I would interview and publish, but we've never done a live stream interview today. So I'm really excited to do that. Not only that, we're interviewing uh, a presidential candidate for the 2020 American election. And I'd like to introduce you today. This is uh, our guest today. His name is Tom Hofling, and Tom is joining us uh, from, I believe, Iowa. Is that right, Tom? Yep. Well, welcome. Welcome to The Currency. I'm thrilled to have you along and uh, very grateful for your time today. Uh, excited to talk a little bit about your platform, your campaign, why you're doing this and so on. Now, I want to let my guests know, and I'm going to try to be one of these interviewers that doesn't talk the whole time, but I want to lay the table a little bit here and let our guests and our viewers know that uh, Tom has a platform that I am very aligned with. I'm a pro-life person. I'm a Christian pro-life. Some of you may know that, some of you may not. And Tom is running on a platform that really is centered around that, this concept of life. And so I'm interested in digging into that with Tom today. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're not pro-life or whatever, I would encourage you to hang in there and listen. I think this will be a good discussion. And I'm going to do my best not to just pat Tom on the back and say, rah, rah, and let him preach to the choir. I want to push a little bit and get underneath why is Tom pro-life and why is he running for office. So I hope you'll stick around. But Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here, Mike. I, I really appreciate the invite. Well, I'm glad to have you. And again, again I have to give credit to, uh, I, you know, on YouTube, his handle is Doughboy Biscuit. I think his name is John. I, well, I don't want to dox him, but I think on Twitter he uses his real name. But Doughboy put us together. We were in the midst of a podcast and he said, hey, uh, have you? Would you like to interview somebody that's running for office? I said, yeah, that'd be fun. And so thank you to him as well. Um, real quick, we've got a, just a quick hello. Uh, Susan Harris jumped in. She said, thanks for having Tom today. His message is a delight. So Tom, looks like some of your uh, supporters and fans are in the, in the comments today as well. And I'm, I'm glad to have you here, Susan. Thank you. So Tom, let's start by getting into your campaign. Talk a little bit because, you know, there We've got this situation in the U.S. where we've got the two-party system, and it's been that way for a very long time. I think in some of the early days, there were, there were more parties at the table, but we've really filtered down to a two-party system. That said, we do get a lot of independence. You get the, um, you know, the different like libertarian parties and the socialist worker parties and these things running. They often don't get very much visibility. Every once in a while, you get a third party. Talk a little bit about your uh, run and essentially wh what is your party and what is your kind of campaign all about? Well, the first thing people need to remember is that uh, our Constitution says nothing about political parties. And in fact, our first two presidents, George Washington and John Adams, both were very strong in their uh, desire that we would not fall prey to a, becoming a two-party system. Uh, of course, it didn't make it much past Jefferson and Hamilton uh, for that to break down and the two-party system to, do, to begin to develop. Uh, I would like to see a day when we uh, completely disempowered the political parties. Now, I say this as somebody who left the GOP. I, I'm a former GOP official in my home state, Mike, uh, here in Iowa, Way back in the in the 90s, I was on the Republican State Committee. This is how I got involved originally in national politics. 
Uh, you know, when you're uh, when you're on the state committee in the Republican Party in Iowa, uh, because we're the first in the nation status, presidential candidates want to stay in your spare bedroom. So, uh, you know, I was a big part of the GOP. I worked for many years to elect Republican candidates across the country. I worked on uh, presidential campaigns uh, for my friend, old friend, Dr. Alan Keyes. I worked on U.S. Senate races and congressional races and all le at all levels for the Republican Party. But by about 2008, we had become fed up. There was no way we were going to support John McCain, who we knew had spent his career, political career in the cloakrooms of the Senate fighting everything we believe in. So we, at that point, started a new party called America's Party. But we set it up to be sort of an unparty. Uh, in other words, a poison pill for political parties. Uh, our party, you, you can find out about it at selfgovernment.us. Our party platform is there, our leadership pledge. But it's a very strict adherence in our party to a core set of, of uh, the original moral and constitutional principles that our country, country was founded on. That's what you will find at that website. Hmm. And when you begin to lay out that simple plumb line of principle, what you find out in modern American politics is how very few there are in politics now who adhere to that uh, set of core principles. The fact that our rights come from God, not from any man, uh, the, those moral, natural law, moral principles we find in our Declaration of Independence, uh, you just, you can't find them. Uh, you start to put these these politicians to the test and you find out that they just can't cut it. Well, uh, so we didn't support John McCain. We didn't support Mitt Romney. We certainly don't support Donald Trump. Uh, we didn't in 2016 and we don't this year. So our party, we don't care what people's party is. We don't care what a candidate's, what letter is by their name. What we care about is their proven adherence to these, these core moral and constitutional principles that we so represent. I I want to unpack some of these principles before we do that, though. And this, you know, where my mind goes is I, I like I hear what you say and there's a shorthand for me. I kind of connect dots and start thinking about things. When you say that uh, our rights come from God, I can make a philosophical connection in my mind to how that can be. And I think maybe the founders and maybe successive generations after them having a classical education learning philosophy, theology, and so on, probably could make those same connections. I'm not convinced that a modern person understands what that means. And, and I guess my question is, um, how have you, like when you put that concept out there, if you're speaking to people that are just average Joe and Sally going about their life, how, how do, are they able to grasp that concept? And how do you make that, that connection? Yeah, the beauty of self-evident truth is it's self-evident. In other words, it's the sort of thing that everybody understands intrinsically. They just know it. My little children understand it, okay? They just know it, even when they're two years old. They know the basic difference between right and wrong. I, as a Christian, somebody who believes Romans chapter 1, I believe they, they are born with that. So let me tell you a quick little anecdote. Uh, six years ago, I ran for governor as a Republican here in Iowa. And just because nobody else would, and we had a governor for life named Terry Branstad that nobody would take on. So I jumped in the primary, went and got the signatures and, and ran. 
uh, when we were getting those signatures, I, we were getting them out of a pool hall down in Des Moines. And I walked in there with a clipboard and there was a young lady sitting at the counter. And I said, hey, I'm running against Branstad. Would you sign my signature or sign my petition? And she goes, oh, I hate Branstad. Yeah, I'll sign it. You know, And, and then a conversation <laughs> ensued. Well, she was a liberal Democrat. She was sure. pro, pro-choice. pro And she says, yeah, well, you know, how can you defend a pro-life position, she asked me. And I said, I said, well, it's really easy. If I become governor and I raise my hand and I swear an oath to God to uh, support and defend our constitutions, which require the equal protection of every single person, I have to do that. And I just stopped and I looked at her. And she just looked at me and you know how in a conversation, 10 seconds of silence is forever, right? She yeah. sat there for like 10 seconds looking at me. She goes, touche. And that was the end of the conversation. See, she, I mean, you just have to present, sure. you have to have a solid moral case that you can make in simple terms that people can understand and they'll get it. I, I you know, not everybody's well, going to accept that. that. I appreciate that. But if I'm thinking about this, so so right and wrong, I'm with you. Most of us as children have a, a moral sense. We, we might want to tell ourselves that we're free to do anything, but in our gut, we know what's right and we know what's wrong. And right. we might jump through some hoops to avoid God. If I'm a materialist or an atheist, I might make reasons to, to say, well, there's, you know, economic or uh, um, evolutionary reasons that I might make a decision. For, but, but that aside, I get that. But when you say something like our rights come from God, that's a little bit of a different. That's not something that someone intrinsically understands, especially in a world where we really feel like our rights come from the government. I mean, the average person, I think, intrinsically feels like my rights come from the government. It's granted to me by the government. That seems to be the way people behave and act, at least when you see what the arguments that they make and why the political struggles well, are so fierce. If you accept that... Uh I mean, first of all, our founders, they did. They made a theological assertion. They, they made no bones about it, the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, now by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, what you're left with, and my apologies to anybody out there who may not be a Christian or whatever, but without that assertion, all you are left with is the arbitrary opinions, the ever-changing arbitrary right. opinions of men. And if you're right. at the mercy of the arbitrary ever-changing opinions of men, uh, you as a nation and you as an individual, you're doomed, okay? You're just doomed. Uh, if, if we have to determine the difference between right and wrong by what the Supreme Court thinks, mm -hmm. rather than what we know is right, we are no longer a self-governing people. So I hope we can get a little bit into that, Mike, because that's a real key uh, is, is yeah, I agree position vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, the, the courts. Yeah, and let's but, jump into it. I, I'll just make the comment that, um, you know, I was just thinking as you're talking, if, if there is no right or wrong and if the government grants us our rights, then we're kind of at the mercy of the whim. And really, when you're talking about a democracy, which a lot of people think of our country not as a republic, but as a democracy, and that's where they're trying to move it, then you're really at the whim of the majority. And uh, democracies are brutal, brutal to the minorities. There's no room for dissension. There's no room for different ways of thinking or living. There's no plurality. It's the, ma it's the will of the, the majority, and you have to conform. And that's that's not that, that that's uh, if you want hell on earth, that's a great way to create hell on earth. And I think we have some more modern examples of that. Um, 
some of our communist nations, people think of them as being top down, which they are, but they position themselves as we're doing the will of the people. And the will of the people, at least on paper, was brutal. But this idea that laws equal morality, or if something's legal, it must be good. Um, mm. You know, that, I, I find that actually quite common. And when you push back, people are surprised to think that, well, wait a minute, a, a law could be wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's so much confusion out there, Mike. Uh, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, he read his letters from a Birmingham jail. He said, he said everything that the, Ger the Nazis did in Germany was legal. And he used scare quotes, right. of course. Right. Uh, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary back in the 1950s was illegal. So, look, uh, if a law, I mean, it, we have a heritage in Western civilization in the United States. We have a history of our whole system being premised on the natural moral law. The understanding that any law that is unjust is not a law at all. This mm. goes all the way back to Augustine, back to Aquinas, Blackstone, uh, the, the con uh, Constitutional Convention, uh, Blackstone, was more quoted than any other source except for the Bible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, an unjust law is no law at all. Uh, we spend a lot of our time fighting this fallacy of judicial supremacy, and you'll see me coming back to that a lot because so much has been staked on that. Uh, first of all, court opinions are not laws to begin with. So people say, Oh, we have to overturn Roe. Well, that's a that's a canard. There's nothing to overturn because Roe v. Wade is not a law. Roe v. Wade was an unjust, illicit, illegitimate court opinion uh, 47 years ago. That's all right. it was. The so court precedent. Yeah, I would. I, I mean, I hate to keep pointing people to websites, but one <laughs> of our okay. websites is equalprotectionforposterity.com. If you go there, this whole website deals with this fallacy of judicial supremacy. And there's a link in the navigation top center, right at the top, and it says judicial supremacy. And there's a whole page, a long essay from my brilliant wife, and also tons of quotes from people like Jefferson and Hamilton and, and Lincoln uh, decrying this idea that we're supposed to be ruled by the courts. No, so what if the courts make a bad opinion— it's uh, incumbent on the other branches of government to oppose them and to provide a check and balance against them. And this is the key to stopping this abortion holocaust in this country is beginning to understand this. So what you're saying, when you say judicial supremacy, for those uh, listening, you're saying essentially the courts shouldn't have the ultimate power to decide the quote unquote, the, the law of the land. And, and you're making the argument that Roe v. Wade was a court decision, not something that went through Congress and through the typical practice of how you create a law that goes on the books. Is that correct? Yes. And, and of course, this has great salience now with another Supreme Court judge up for consideration. Uh, if you know the subject and you watch these nominees come uh, through the Senate, you begin to pick up on the fact that they're telling you straight out, we are not going to do anything to stop abortion because we believe in super precedent. Now they even call it precedent mm -hmm. on prep precedent, as Kavanaugh said. Uh, Gorsuch said, a fetus is not a person. Okay. If you say a fetus is not a person, as per the 14th Amendment, you are saying, I am not going to do anything to stop abortion. Mm -hmm. And the latest pick, uh, Miss, Mrs. Barrett, 
she she when she was uh, went through the Senate to get on the circuit court three years ago, she said all the same things that are expected by senators. They basically have to kiss the ring of judicial supremacy and of stare decisis of judicial precedent before they'll be allowed to sit on the court. We have mm-hmm. to get past that. We have to begin electing executives who will defy the court sure. and who will say, when Nixon was in office, when Roe was decided, Nixon should have said, you know, you can decide all you want, but we're not going to enforce it. If anybody opens an abortion clinic, we're going to shut it down mm-hmm. because it's genocide. It's mass murder. So this is, uh, by the way, when you introduced me, you were labeling, labeling me. And I think <laughs> probably from your framework is pro-life. I don't really call myself pro-life anymore. Okay. I once did. But a number of years ago, about a dozen years ago, I moved away from that label because the pro-life movement is so corrupted, it has become a bunch of regulationists. They don't want to stop abortion. They simply want to regulate it. And everything they've done for the past 50 years has been within the framework of Roe v. Wade, within the framework of judicial supremacy. So myself and many others that I represent across the country, we've taken to calling ourselves abolitionists Mm. of abortion. And that's who we are. We want immediate end to this bloodbath before mm. more millions of innocents die. Let me ask you, that. I, I like that. You know, I'm a, my background is branding and marketing, and uh, I think pro-life is a good branding position. I think it communicates the, the value of the human being in the womb. But I, I take your point on, on kind of where the pro-life movement is and how they're trying to come at the problem. Um, I think, I mean, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I'm guessing it's a multi-prong. I think you get different people trying to do different things. That said, I love the idea of abortion abolitionist or abolitionist. I think that's a very powerful word, and it brings, it conjures up a, a previous fight in our country's history to abolish another inhumane practice. And um, I think people can resonate with that. You know, it brings some positive and at the same time powerful uh, thoughts. I want to ask you a quick um question on what I wanted two things. I've got George here. George is from uh, Austria and he's got a question for you. I want to get to that in just a minute. But before we do, I want to ask, this being the case, what you're arguing, well, what do you do? I mean, it's one thing to say we want to abolish it. Uh, It's another thing to say that, well, the Supreme Court, they're not going to change it. It's another thing to say Roe v. Wade. That's really not a law. That's great theoretically, but in practice, how do you deal with this uh, issue? I have had this simplified for the eight years that I've been running for president. Uh, as far as the president himself, he he is swearing to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments require equal protection under the law. The Fourteenth Amendment is very explicit in uh, making this demand on the states, in fact. Each and every state is required to provide equal protection under the law. Mm-hmm. So the president is swearing to provide equal protection under the law to every person. Uh, I would just ask your listeners, if there were terrorists uh, every day in this country attacking grade schools and killing 3,000 kids, would the president of the United States have the legitimate authority to use the force of the federal government to bring that to an end or not. There's no moral difference between a third grader 
and a, uh, a first trimester or a five-minute-old conceived child in the womb. They are morally the same entity. They are a human being made mm-hmm. in the image of like and likeness of God. So I, I've made it clear, and uh, you can find this on my personal website on TomHofling.com, uh, that if I became president, I made it very crystal clear. The first thing I would do, of course, is take the oath of office, which is required by Article 6. Then I would I would draft and sign a presidential finding to the effect that the child in the womb is indeed a person as per the equal protection requirements of the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments. Okay, that would be a presidential finding. The executive of the United States considers them self-evidently to be human, to mm-hmm. be persons. Okay, then the next thing I would do is I would I would send an order out to everyone who works for me in the executive branch, and I would say, if you do not hold to this, if you don't agree with the self-evident truth that these are indeed human beings, that these are indeed persons, I want your resignation five minutes from now. I'd kick them out of my government. And then I would begin to issue the orders to shut down the abortion clinics. So this is the pathway forward. In the, it's essentially using the... Go ahead. Go ahead. Not exactly. That, that, that's <laughs> okay. the pathway if you get elected president of the United right. States. You see, right. the thing, if you read the Declaration of Independence, one of the things you learn and study it carefully is human government exists before anything else to protect innocent human life. That's... That's why we have government, okay? So the presidential office exists before anything else to protect innocent human life. Every congressional seat exists for the same reason. Every judicial seat in the federal government, every governorship, every state legislative seat, every office in the land before anything else exists to protect the lives of the American people. So... Mm -hmm. Because the president is the chief executive, he is the chief magistrate in, in this country, uh, the, the largest share of the responsibility falls on him. But the responsibility also falls on every member of Congress, every senator, every judge, every governor. Uh, so, look, the president, if he tried to do it unilaterally, uh, you know, look, Eisenhower sent the 101st Airborne into Little Rock back in the 50s so that nine little uh, black children could go to school. Mm-hmm. And Governor Faubus, the governor of Arkansas, was using the National Guard to back up the mob that was keeping them from going right. Right. to school. So, you know, would I, as president, exercise the power to shut down the abortion clinics? I would. Yeah. I might get impeached. I might get impeached. Well, might I, I don't think trial. I don't think might I don't think might would. I mean, you would get impeached. At least they'd try. I mean, but, there, you know, there's no I way that, I would welcome that, Mike. Yeah, I understand. I would that. welcome not, that because yeah. what I would do, the trial in the Senate would become a reverse Nuremberg. Right. Because right. I would put the whole government on trial and say, look, this is what you're allowing. You're yeah. allowing, you know, we're talking 65 million plus innocents have died in our country. Right. Uh, you know, and the Nazis at Nuremberg, you know, we were just following orders. We didn't accept that as a plea. OK, mm-hmm. we're just following the orders of the Supreme Court is mm-hmm. not legitimate plea either. Right. Right. Let me go to George. I, by the way, thank you. I like that answer. Let me go to George. So George uh, is an inn owner in Austria. And he says, Mike, I'd be interested what Tom and his party thinks about abortion in the case of rape, abuse 
and if the life of the mother is in danger. And Tom, I can maybe presume what you'd say, but I'd like to know, how, how, how do you answer that? I'm going to start with the toughest one to answer, which is the life of the mother. Uh, some uh, people who are of an age may remember during the Reagan administration, he had a Surgeon General by the name of C. Everett Koop. And C. Everett Koop was a, uh, he, he delivered babies for a living. That's what he did. He and his his fellow doctors in his practice, they delivered tens of thousands of babies. And he made it very clear that he, could, he did not know of a single instance where they had to kill the baby to save the mother. Okay? Yeah, both are of equal value. You, as a doctor, this was once part of the Hippocratic Oath going back, uh, you know, into ancient history. Right. Uh, that you do not do any harm to that child. And so... Now, you know, I, I reject the life of the mother argument. I don't believe that you protect both. That doesn't mean that the doctor's God doesn't mean he can save every patient. But his responsibility is to try to the yeah. best of his ability to save both patients no matter what. Now, the other ones, that's easy. It's, it's absolutely barbaric to kill one person for the crime of another person. A, a rape is a horrific crime, and it should be punished very severely. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's some people who think that should be a capital offense. Um, but to compound that crime with an even worse crime, which is murder, mm -hmm. okay, that, that's barbaric. It's a violation of all morality. It's a violation of our own principles that our system here is founded upon. You just don't punish one person for the crime of another. Yeah. That baby is innocent. Yeah, that's well and spoken. I, I find too, you know, let's get out of the abortion discussion. You could talk about the public school argument. You could talk about all these different arguments. Um, people, and, and this isn't to pick on you, George, but people often go to the most, you know, the, the extreme cases. What about the extreme case? What about the outlier? What about the, the one in a million chance that this could go the other way? And then they want to make laws and rules based on the extremes as opposed to saying, well, what really happens on a day-to-day -day basis? Let's make, let's make moral just laws based on what most people's experience. We can always deal with these other issues and they're, they're creative ways to deal with them. I appreciate the fact that uh, C. Everett Koop said he never saw a situation where you couldn't say both. I mean, that's, that's a fantastic insight. So thanks for answering that. What, um, you know, we're talking about the abolition of abortion here, Tom, is that the main reason you're running for office? I mean, what, why are you running for office? Well, it is because it's the central moral question of our time. Uh, it's a mass atrocity. And, and, you know, as a Christian, I have to believe, you know, reading my Bible I'll back through history and reading what the Bible says and knowing history, nations that shed innocent blood are destroyed. I, I'm a father of 10 and a grandfather of four. Nice. Okay. And uh, I care about my kids and my grandkids and my great grandkids and, and their their future. And I don't want my country to be destroyed. You know, I, I have a my family. I can trace it back, you know, 12 generations in this country. And mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of people paid a really heavy price to give us the blessings we've had. I don't want to be the generation that squanders that because God ends up having to drop the hammer on us. So you've run for office more than once. This isn't your first rodeo. Uh, you know, you shared a little bit of your background. Someone had asked earlier, you know, what your experience was. I think it was um, 
I didn't, I, uh, I'll just put it up on the screen. I think you have to answer it directly, but K, K uh, Bosi, your boss, said, what experience does Hoefling have? You've been talking a little bit about your experience. You ran for governor. You've been, I think, before the show, five minutes as we got warmed up, you were telling me that you were um, part of the GOP. Uh, and maybe you said that on the show to the audience as well. You're part of the GOP um, uh, machinery in Iowa. Uh, and and so you've got a lot of experience in the political realm. This isn't your first rodeo as far as running for president. Um, what, what experience have you had in the past when you've run for office? You know, what kind of uh, vote support did you get throughout the country? And I guess where I'm leading, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, so I don't ambush you. I'm really going to ask you, why are you doing this? Because I'm assuming you don't have a chance. I mean, just to put it on the table. I mean, if anybody's looking at this, they're going, look, there's no way this guy's going to beat Biden or Trump. These guys suck up all the oxygen in the room. They got hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in their pockets. Uh, they've got the attention of the American people. Um, so, so knowing that you can't win, save a miracle. There's just some kind of existential act of God and you win. But other than that, why, why are you running? I mean, I understand the, the principle, but why are you using this platform? What's your hope here? Well, the first thing is, I would say, is we're supposed to be a representative republic. And the people I represent are not being represented by Biden or Trump, not even anywhere close. <laughs> so I'm running to represent the people that I represent, the people who do not support abortion under any circumstances, the people who do not support the homosexual agenda, uh, that people that stand for the original a definition and structure of the family and mm -hmm. understand how essential that is, uh, representing people who don't compromise on our right to keep and bear arms, uh, people who are so radical even as to believe that we're supposed to stay within the enumerated powers of our Constitution and not run our posterity into debt, uh, you know, running up debts that this generation cannot possibly repay. So I represent people. Now, actually, I represent a large portion of the people that are supporting Trump. As a matter of fact, I hear it all day long. Well, you're right, Tom. I've been hearing it for years. You're right. Your platform is absolutely right on the mark. Uh, it's even beyond Reaganism in terms of its clarity and its simplicity and its, its the essential nature. Uh, my platform TomHofling2020.com, if you go read it, those things are not optional if we want to save this country. So I'm doing it out of sense of desperation in that sense, because mm -hmm. nobody else is saying what needs to be said to save the country. Now, as far as, you know, the the actual condition. Oh, go ahead. Tom. No, on? it's up. I was trying to put up. I'm trying to put up your um, your points okay. here on the screen for the reader, the viewers. Yeah, well. The point I want to make is that, that uh, you know, as far as the condition of the electorate and what they're going to do, the fact is the Christians in this country, they're not ready to elect me. I'm not going to lie about that. I mean, it's obvious that they're not. They're supporting Donald Trump, even though they know I'm right. Uh, and that's the problem, you see, because... Uh, like 70 to 75 percent of the American people still self-identify as Christians in this country. You know, we could argue all day long what that means and, you know, how many are real Christians and all that sure. stuff. But but the fact is, if even a fraction of those people, if let's say one third 
would simply say no more compromise, no more uh, supporting the, the pro-life movement's bills that in effect end with, and then you can kill the baby. Uh, no more compromise on abortion, no more compromise on marriage, no more compromise with evil. If, if even a fraction of the Christians in this country would do that, I could win. In fact, it is a numerical certainty that I would win if they would stop compromising as long as I continue to be the only candidate getting in these races who actually stands for these things. Mm. And I am, believe me, there's no other candidates to do. So what you're telling so, me is, and I know what you're saying, like 70% of the country in America says, hey, I'm a Christian, whether that's cultural, whether it's nominal, or whether that's, hey, I'm pretty devout is immaterial, but 70%. And you're saying if you can get one third of that group to just say, hey, I'm going to vote my conscience. Now, you know, and, and, and of course, we're being blocked from the ballots. I could go into long horror stories sure, about how sure. the tr Trump lawyers have kept us off of ballots in this election and recent ones. That's uh, politics. <laughs> but it's not right. But, but you that's know, how yeah. A majority, uh, a solid majority of the electors or the voters representing electors will be able to vote for our ticket. Look, yeah. all of my supporters are literate as far as I know. They all know how to write T-O-M-H-O-E-F-L-I-N-G. They all know how to write Andy Pryor's name on mm -hmm. the ballot. Your vice uh, if president. If somebody doesn't uh, know how to do that, somebody in the polling place will help them write it in. Sure. Uh, so, you know, there's been U.S. Senate races won by write-in. In fact, there was just one up in Alaska not that long, or not that many years ago. So, if that's possible, remember we have an electoral system. We have 50 state elections. We don't but have what, one national election. I, you know, I've spent a lot of my career as an entrepreneur, a lot of my career as a uh, doing sales, you know, having to win clients, get up every day, find a new project, find a new uh, uh, client to work with, win a new, uh, win a new campaign opportunity. And I know from that, just, you know, trying to, to pay the bills, that can be emotionally exhausting. But, you know, when I get out of bed in the morning, I've got a really good shot at landing work. I wake up and I'm like, I need a $10,000 project. You know, I've been at this long enough. I've got a gray beard. I, I'm, you know, you and I are have so you've got more hair on top than I do, but um, it must be that good living. But uh, I know I can make it happen. And maybe one day I have a tough day, maybe a week I've got a bad week, even a month I can have a bad month and I can take a beating. And you take a beating in sales, but I can keep waking up because I know I've got a shot and there's just this optimism. I'm looking at your situation. I'm saying, okay, this, this man's positive. He's got a, he's got a, deeper things he believes in. He's got a uh, kind of a focus on why this is important. I understand what you're saying there. How do you get out of bed every day? What, what drives you to keep going? Because again, I'm not, and this is, I'm not trying to dispirit you, but you're, you're not going to win. I hate to be so blunt, but in today's election, you're not going to win. So how, what gets you out of bed in the morning and what keeps you positive and what keeps you convinced this is the right thing to do? Well, mainly because my main focus isn't on the outcome of any particular election. Okay. Uh, my, my focus is on individuals. You know, you and I are sitting here having this great conversation today. And I hope as we go away, you're going to, you know, prayerfully consider the things that I say. And, and I hope that I'm going to leave an effect on your way of thinking about these, you know, essentially important moral questions that we face as a country. So I'm more interested in reaching individuals. I, I'm trying to turn turn Christians. Okay, now don't get me wrong. Look, 
you know, people who aren't Christians out there, I have a message for them and I get a lot of support. You know, I'll get people who say I'm a I'm an atheist anarchist, you know, and they'll end up supporting me because they know that my agenda would do away with about, you know, <laughs> uh, the preponderance of the existing federal beast that's out there. They they know this. So and they like me. Because, you know, sometimes elections are a lot about likability, too. And they like me because I listen to them and Mm -hmm. I give them honest answers. And frankly, people appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So but having said that, my main message is to Christians. And so I spend every day unpacking the same layers of lies that the Christians in this country have bought into, unpacking them for people and saying, No, you've got it wrong. You don't need to overturn Roe. You need officers of government who will keep their oath. That's what you need, not to overturn Roe. You you forget about the courts. Uh, We got to get to the point where we regularly impeach and remove them if they make Mm -hmm. illicit opinions. You know, they're not important. The framers of our constitutional system did not consider them important. So, I'm trying to reach Christians, individual. I have individual successes constantly. Sure. And those are what keep me and my wife and the people that I work closest with. That's what keeps us going, even though, yeah, you know, we're, we're definitely David in this David and Goliath, you know, okay. picture. We, we, we definitely are. There's no doubt about that. Well, that does reframe it for me. Because if you're saying I'm not getting out of bed every morning for the outcome of the election, uh, I'm really focusing on my impact on individuals and trying to turn the hearts of Christians back to the truth. I think that's that's laudable, and I think that helps reframe it. Then I have to ask the, the other question, which is, so, and Tom, I hate doing this because I'm really on your side, but I'm, I, I, so I, I don't want to sit and, and, and pick away. You've got a thick skin. You're running for president. I guess I don't have to apologize, but... <laughs> Then, then how sincere is your campaign? If you're not getting out of bed saying, I'm really trying to win this thing, then why should people take you seriously? Now, I, I understand I, I can take your message seriously. I hear what you're saying that it convicts me, maybe it drives me to repentance, maybe it drives me to, to reconsider my life, et cetera. But, but, it, but if you're running for president, but you're, you're saying, I'm, I'm not really running for the outcome, then why should I take that seriously and why should I take your message seriously? Does that call into question integrity? I don't mean to, to, to put you in the corner on that, but what would you respond to that? I'm not in a corner at all on that, Mike. Uh, I mean, we're, we have an incumbent who famously, infamously said he could go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and he wouldn't lose any support. Okay. I don't have to say that. I, I won't lose any support from my supporters because they know I'm correct and they know that I'm honest and they know that what I'm saying is essential. So I'm not going to, nobody that's supporting me has any illusions at all. They're supporting me because they think I'm the best candidate. Uh, They're supporting me because I'm the candidate that represents them. And and there are a number of states that don't allow write-ins. There are also a few states where we're not going to qualify for various nefarious reasons we won't go into but but the fact is i have supporters who are going to write me in whether they get counted or not sure because there's no way that they are going to support donald trump they're just not going to do it so there's i mean everybody that supports me they know that i'm sincere they know that i'm realistic they know that i know the true situation 
So what and you're saying is you're giving people an opportunity to vote their conscience. You're, so on one hand, you're saying, I'm putting a message out there that I want to call the church to repentance. I want to convict people uh, to, to reevaluate their positions, rethink how they live their lives and, 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 and how they behave. That's one thing. I mean, I, I'm not maybe doing your message justice. On another I, level, and you said this earlier about being, um, I'm here to give representation to a certain group of people. So you're allowing people to go in and pull the lever or, or write in the name with a clear conscience. So I'm in New York State. I'm a Republican in New York. I'm really a conservative. I'm a Burkean conservative. Uh, Donald Trump isn't a conservative. He's a populist at best. But, um, but in New York State, if I vote the Republican or conservative ticket, I, I'm never winning. I mean, it's the same thing. My vote goes into the, the win because it's such a Democrat state. So in my situation, I could write in Tom Hofling and walk away with a clear conscience, as opposed to saying, I'm going to plug my nose and, and vote for Trump. But you do have people in states that are up for grabs. And, and what's your message to those people that say, well, my I don't support. I, I mean, I, I don't want to sound too harsh either, but go for my it. supporters go for are, it. are not political bookies. OK, they're Christians. They don't care. They, they, that's not their responsibility. Their responsibility to God and their own conscience is to vote for the person uh, that they believe meets the criteria set out in Exodus chapter 18. You know, okay. Moses' father-in-law came along and gave him some advice about how you pick leaders. Uh, that's what they care about. They, they're not interested in weighing odds. That's not their job, and that's not how they view their civic duty at all. So I get people, you know, I ran in 2016, I ran in 2012. I think I came in eighth place. In, in 2012, because we had the California ballot in Florida, so we kind of know where we were better back then. Mm -hmm. uh, I came in eighth place. We didn't spend a nickel, and I still came in eighth place. You know, I think that's pretty good. It is. Uh, yeah. and, and I How have big people was the every day. Uh, I don't even know how many people would actually have a numerical possibility of winning. It can't be more than 30 or so. Okay, but still uh, 8 out of 30, uh, let's say that's pretty good. Yeah. You know, so my my point is that, that uh, I get people thanking me all the time for their being able to cast their vote for me four years ago or eight years ago or both. Mm -hmm. They thank mm -hmm. me constantly. They say, thank you so much as I watch I say, watch the Republicans and the Democrats destroy the country. That that's not on my conscience. Mm -hmm. They tell mm -hmm. it to me constantly. Fair enough. So, yeah, I like your comment. Your political bookie shot. That's a great soundbite, and uh, I think that's that's thought provoking. And I think, look, I, that's a great way to position it. It kind of puts the other person <laughs> in a pejorative sense, but. But on the other hand, I do think people are pragmatic and they're like, look, I understand uh, this candidate might be repugnant, et cetera, but I got to throw my vote behind somebody that at least gets me a little closer. I think the argument I'm hearing from you is that person isn't getting you closer. They have no intention of ever changing things. And so you're kidding yourself if you think even being that, um, you, you know, pragmatic, you're somehow getting the, uh, the, the you know, your views a little closer to success. Let me ask you, let me shift gears a little bit. You know, we're kind of talking around a certain assumption, and that is these Christian principles um, should just be part of the American uh, fabric of how the government is run and how society is ordered. A big part of our country doesn't agree with that. How do you address that? Because there's more and more, hey, if you have a faith, you need to get out of government. We don't, it's not right for a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim. It's not right for someone with a deep faith 
to influence the way that we make our decisions. How do you respond to that? I pretty much don't. There's just, just no, there's no reason. There's no interviews reason over everybody. <laughs> there's just no reasoning with people like that. Look, if, if you don't have faith, George Washington made it very clear that if we ever get to the point where the obligations of the, uh, the oath mean nothing, we're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if oaths don't mean anything in the court of law, then our system of jurisprudence is dead. If, if, if oaths don't mean anything in elective office, we're done. And, and they don't. I mean, the people we have in office right now, they think it's a big photo op. Yeah. They, they, yeah. They're not thinking about the hereafter and the fact they're going to have to stand before God and give an account of themselves for right. what they did with this responsibility that was given to them, this great responsibility. So, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, unbelievers out there. You know, I got nothing for you except to say, turn to the Lord. That's all I've got. I'm I'm trying to turn the church. Look, I'm trying to clean up my own house. If you're not a Christian, you should appreciate the fact I'm trying to clean up my own house. I'm pointing fingers not at you. I don't think the heathens are why our country is in the mess it's in. I think our country's in the mess it's in because of the Christians and their hypocrisy. The fact that they say one thing and politically they do the exact opposite. They say, I'm against this, and then they they support Donald Trump. I'm against the homosexual agenda, and they support Donald Trump, who thinks it's a great honor to be considered the most pro-gay president in American history. You know, uh, you know. They they buy into this nonsense that John, that somehow Donald Trump is the most pro-life president in history. It's just it's just preposterous. Uh, Donald Trump has continued to fund Planned Parenthood in record amounts. Last year, it was six hundred and eighteen million dollars went to Planned Parenthood and helped them pay to destroy a record number of children. Mm-hmm. Uh, his judicial picks, which of course, the Republican Party continues to use as a lure to lure Christian conservatives to the right, slaughter. Right. Uh, you know, take a close look. Uh, Republican courts decided Roe, a heavily Republican court. There were only two Democrats on the court at that time, and one of them voted against the majority opinion. Uh, every pro-abortion ruling by the court since then has been a heavily Republican court. Listen to Donald Trump's Judicial picks when they testify in front of the Senate, they will tell you things like the fetus is not a person. They will tell you, I, you know, I believe in precedent upon precedent, super precedent. That means we can't touch it. And, you know, they're signaling to you. They're telling you what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. So just quit buying this stuff. You, You know, how long does the scam have to continue before you finally say, look, you know, this is a hamster wheel. I'm tired of running around and around and around in circles while the bloodshed continues, while the moral uh, erosion of our whole country continues, while, while we are running up debts. I mean, uh, the national debt has jumped over $7 trillion since Trump was elected. And this is a guy who said, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of the, the national debt. You know, well, if no, I looked, you can't I looked also that. under uh, George Bush, uh, George H., George W. Bush, um, 
Uh, the national debt ballooned under him as well, Republicans. So, yeah, I mean, Republicans always like to talk about their fiscal, um, you know, discipline, et cetera. But, uh, you know, we've seen huge growth in the in the deficit. It doesn't matter what letters after your name. They just spend like drunken sailors. Yeah, if someone tells you I'm a I'm a social liberal and a fiscal conservative, <laughs> I my warning to you is look out, your pocket is about to get tipped. Yeah, you better put your hand on your wallet because someone's got their hand in your yeah. in your pocket. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can't be a social liberal and a fiscal conservative because social liberal uh, demands lots of money going into the into the uh, coffers of the government to fund their programs. Yeah. Absolutely. Tom, you know, the way you speak, uh, I, you know, I guess the question is, you know, let's let's play this forward. Let's say you did win. Let's say you run one of these times and you win. You know, can a Christian even govern this nation? Can somebody with deep, and I don't mean a Christian, like I'm not judging uh, what someone's relationship before God is, but I'm saying somebody that's ordering their decisions in their life around biblical principles and not willing to compromise to appease uh, or for whatever reason, could they govern this country? Is this country governable by a person with morals and ethics? See, that's a yes and no answer, and I'll give you both sides of that. The, the no side of it is, you know, look, electing one president who's got a moral uh, stance and a moral compass isn't going to save this country. I mean, we need a national revival. Uh, we need a mass revival, and one person isn't going to uh, affect that. So the the other side of it, though, is, of course, uh, you could govern as a Christian. I mean, you can be Calvin Coolidge. Why not? I mean, uh, you just have to have some guts, and you just have to look people in the eye and say, this is what I believe, this is what I swore to do, and I'm going to do it come hell or high water. You can do what you want to me, uh, but— I'm going to do it. I'm going to shut down the abortion clinics. I'm not going to go along. I'm not going to sign bills that try and regulate genocide that, in effect, end with and then you can kill the baby. I'm not going to sign any of those bills. Send me a bill that comports with uh, thou shall not murder and with no person shall be deprived of life without due process of law. Send me a bill like that. I'll sign it. Mm -hmm. It's simple. You know, if you want your bill signed, otherwise you're going to have to override it. And if I still think it's a problem morally or constitutionally, you, you don't have any way to force me to enforce it. Right. Because That's I have right. an oath that I swore to God, not to the Congress and not to the courts. You know, I mean, Andrew Jackson did. He did it on a national bank. He told him, you know, Marshall made his ruling. Now let him enforce it. What's your position on uh, capital punishment? Oftentimes, uh, I'll say pro-life, just as not your, you specifically, but pro-life people get accused of, well, you're happy for capital punishment of criminals, but, you're, but you want to defend the life of a baby. And that seems to people to be out of integrity. What's your position and in, in how, how do you support that, well, I believe that I believe that you, you punish the guilty and you protect the innocent. Yeah. It's very simple. I mean, as a Christian, my my belief in capital punishment is grounded in Genesis chapter 9, when God told all the nations through the sons of Noah that if someone sheds innocent blood, by men shall their blood be shed. This is the very basis of God's ordaining of human government, government yeah. giving human government the power of the sword. If, you, if that chapter is not the basis of your political philosophy, 
in my opinion, your political philosophy is lacking a foundation. So I believe in it scripturally as a Christian. I believe in it philosophically. And I also believe in it personally, Mike, and I'm going to just tell you straight out why. And uh, I had a very close family member, my sister, who was brutally murdered. Mm. And, you know, her murder and the trial of her murderer didn't change my position one iota. Okay, because my position was well grounded before uh, any of that ever started. But uh, that man should not be drawn breath. And he is. He he should have been punished. That you lost your sister. Yeah, that's how long ago was that? That was 16 years ago. She she, her her husband had died only hours earlier, actually, of a heart attack. And then she was brutally murdered, leaving two orphaned teenagers. Oh, my goodness. That's horrible. This was in Iowa. Look. This was in Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Look, uh, the law is a teacher. This is an ancient principle. The law is a teacher. What our laws say, I mean, there are a lot of women out there. I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of friends who stand on the sidewalks outside the abortion clinics and beg women not to kill their own children Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis. And the women are so callous. Um, They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing when they're walking in there. And, uh, you know, and they, they'll tell you flat out, well, it's legal. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what they hang their hat on. It's legal, so I'm going to do it. If it wasn't legal, most of them wouldn't be doing it. Now, there'd still be abortions, of course. You know, murder is illegal. People murder people. But uh, the law is a teacher, and it, it also affects the wider society. As you see the violence breaking out in our country now in the streets, you see school shootings. Yep. Yep. Don't kid yourself. You know, you see these riots. Don't kid yourself. This is some of the, the bad fruit of abortion, the abortion mindset that's taking hold of our country. Uh, shedding innocent blood leads to more bloodshed. This, mm-hmm. is just, this is just the natural progressions of things in this world. So if we talk about holding the guilty responsible, if someone shed innocent blood, they uh, would qualify for capital punishment, losing their life, obviously a fair trial, et cetera. If I apply that, yeah. you know, you talked even about a reverse Nuremberg trial. If you were um, impeached, give you a chance to state your case. But if I apply that thinking to abortion doctors, I apply that thinking to a mother who you say knowingly go in, she knows she's murdering her baby. I would argue in some cases, yes. I would argue in other cases. I, I guess I would argue on a very deep level, I think we all know that abortion is wrong. And even the other side usually will say it's not a good thing. We don't like it. But, but people lie themselves and are lied to. Where I'm going with this is to say, how would you hold or would you hold these women accountable for what they've done? Like I'm, if I'm applying this approach this yardstick, what would your stance and what would your actions be on that? Well, the first thing I want to do is point out a legal fact, and that is that Roe v. Wade happened in the first place because Texas legislators treated unborn babies differently than born persons in terms of their law, and they made the punishment for killing an unborn child much, much less, basically a slap on the wrist uh, instead of using the law that they would use for any other person in terms of uh, capital crimes. 
So that's where Roe v. Wade began was in bad legislating in Texas. In fact, last year I went and testified in front of the Texas legislature to that very thing. Uh, we actually managed to get a bill of abolition into a committee in the Texas legislature through the activism of abolitionists in Texas. We had 500 people showed up, 350 of us testified uh, for this bill of abolition. There were five only five pro-aborts who testified against our bill. And okay. the pro-life Republican committee knocked it down. They, they didn't let it proceed. We've had bills of abolition in a number of other states, including my own, eight years ago. Uh, we put forward a bill through my state legislator that went straight to the murder code, appropriately identified the unborn child as a human being, as a person, and then... Uh, included them in the murder code and then went through the Iowa code and struck out every code section that the pro-life movement has put there for decades that in effect licenses, grants a governmental license to kill babies as long as you meet some arbitrary criteria or some arbitrary schedule. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you cannot restore justice for unborn babies unless you begin to treat them like other human beings in terms of our laws. Sure. So the pro-life movement hates us for this because they say, no, we don't want to punish the women at all. And what you're saying is we want to start the process that created Roe all over again. Uh, you can't. You have to restore respect for the personality, the personhood of that child in every way in order to restore restore just laws in our country. So what I'm inferring from what you're saying or just interpreting is that, yeah, going forward, if you, if you uh, and again, Roe v. Wade's not a law. So if you, uh, from an executive position, say, you know, this is immoral and may not happen. So somebody does an abortion anyway in, in contravention, you're going to hold them accountable. What about people that the day before you took office had an abortion, are they going to be held accountable too? What about abortion doctors? Are you going to arrest abortion doctors and put them in? I mean, it's one thing to put them out of business. That's one thing. But are you going to go after them, I guess, is my question. Well, I'd go after them if they if they keep killing babies. I'm certainly not looking for retribution. I'm not looking okay. for retroactive punishment for anybody. Okay, that's it. No, my goal is to provide equal protection for these babies gotcha. going forward. That, that's all. I, yeah. I can't do anything about, about what's been done. If I were elected, the only thing I can do anything about is keeping my oath in terms of what's happening going forward. Gotcha. I think it's just important to establish that because people, if you don't fill in those yeah, blanks, people fill them right. in in crazy ways. And and uh, I, I just want to, let me just put up, uh, George has a question again. He says, how many innocent people have been killed by capital punishment? You get a fair trial if you have the money to pay for a good lawyer. The, quote, innocence project and similar have shown hundreds of, and I guess he has a follow-up, but he's I guess he's asking how many innocent people have actually been killed? Um Oh, here we go. In, in the, the second part of the question, uh, such cases have happened. If you have to save every life, this can't be right. So I think his question is how many innocent people have actually been killed by capital punishment? And I don't know if that's rhetorical, uh, I, you know, but I think he's just asking that question. The answer, of course, is I don't know any more than he does. Yeah. I, I certainly yeah. want fair trials. Right. But I also, and I'll, again, I'll use my own experience, uh, uh, the the man who killed my sister, he went immediately went across the river into Nebraska and shot someone else. 
nine times and killed them. Mm. He was tried in Nebraska, which has capital punishment. Uh, but the prosecutors decided that it wasn't heinous enough. Uh, shooting someone nine times in front of hundreds of people, including children, wasn't heinous enough. So they, they gave him a life sentence. Then he came back to Iowa and was tried here on first-degree murder. We had one hinky juror who was going to hang the jury, and they ended up uh, only giving him second degree. We don't have capital punishment in my state. He got a 50-year sentence here, which, of course, he'll never serve because he's serving a life sentence in Nebraska. But I know how jurors can can rob justice. Uh, That juror robbed justice from my family. Mm -hmm. Uh, That that juror robbed justice from my sister's children Mm -hmm. simply because I don't know why. So, look. Human justice is imperfect. It, it always has been and it always will be. That's right. We have to try and perfect it as much as we can. Mm-hmm. There will be mistakes and we need to avoid those. But capital punishment, I mean, it's pro-life. And I, right. I again, I right. usually forsake that that title, pro-life, but, but uh, capital punishment is in defense of innocent human life. That's why we have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, as long as we don't, as long as we don't punish this kind of extreme violence that robs people of their lives, uh, the foundations of our form of government, our rule of law in this country are going to continue to erode. There's just no way around it. Uh, I appreciate that. Tom, let's, let's go back. I think this is both for the Christians and the non-Christians in the audience. You know, you made a comment that part, you know, the, you looked at the camera and, and I, I love what you said. You said, Hey, uh, the heathens and the in the non-believers out there, this where the country's at. I'm not blaming you for that. I'm not after you. I'm I'm after the church. I blame the church for where we're at right now. And then you kind of went on to talk about 2016 and continually voting for Donald Trump, et cetera. Now I understand in the current context that makes a lot of sense, but I don't think our country got here from 2016 forward. And I don't think the church just dropped the ball in 2016. I can't imagine that it's only been three years, four years of us dropping the ball that got us to where we are. What would you say, and I think this would be interesting for someone inside or outside the church, what would you say has been the deep issue within the church that's caused, it can't just be we're voting for Trump. There's got to be something else going on inside the body that is the problem. What would you, what would you identify? Well, just basic, basic spiritual things, you know, the fear of man overcoming their fear of God uh, is bad teaching coming in. We see all of this bad teaching with, uh, you know, the woke church and all things, which I won't go into, uh, you know, and the, these corruptions have been going on within Christian churches and denominations the whole time I've been alive. You know, I've watched the so-called mainline churches slide further and further left. Uh, throughout my lifetime, so. Uh, so, so you know, you're saying it's 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 a, the political, the left leaning of the church. It's bad doctrine. I mean, the reason I'm asking this is because you, you get to a point it's like, well, who has, you know, what church has the right doctrine? You can sit and argue this. I mean, we've got so many denominations, so many splits. Everybody argues over every jot and tittle. How do you like? Where is it right? And what are what's an example of people living out? this reality that you want to see, is there an example anywhere we can look and say, well, here's an example of people living their faith in a way that's, that's 
appropriate, that's productive, that's civic? Well, I mean, I know a lot of individual Christians. I know some pastors who are living that way. They're living out their faith and their 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 actions and their political life actually matches their confession. I know lots of those people. I also know lots of them that aren't. And in fact, a heavy majority, it would appear right now, that, that aren't. See, I'm dealing in the political realm, okay? I'm not trying to start a church. I started a political party, not a church. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have any... Uh, we don't have any, you know, sign up at the door. You know, you have to be exactly believe. No confession of faith. No, we we want we want we we have a civic faith in a sense. I hate to call it that, but we have a <laughs> a, a framework for moral America that happened that was laid out for our our politics and. And we don't have to be Northern Ireland. We don't have to be fighting amongst ourselves about those things because they're so fundamental. They're so basic. You know, our rights come from God, not from men. You know, all men are created equal. They all have a right to life, liberty, and property. Uh, let's protect that. Let's protect our right to keep and bear arms. Let's put our government back within this constitutional box. Let's get rid of these agencies that are not moral or are not constitutional or are not necessary. Let's let's just cut all that out. We can do all of that without a bunch of sectarian fighting. Uh, I try and avoid that. You know, we still, of course, are subject to it. Uh, it, it you know, these things buffet us. In, in our political work now and again. But, you know, we're talking about basic right and wrong within the political context. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things that strikes me all throughout our conversation is uh, the challenge of um, shared or the lack share of values. So I think I look back at our country's founding, uh, you could say that there were shared values. People uh, agreed on what was good, what was evil. They agreed that there was a good and evil. Uh, you know, they may not be devout. They might mock God, et cetera. But there was a lot of shared values and common common things in, in uh, hey, private property. We we all agreed that, that your private property is kind of sacred. You should have the right to it. Uh, we don't really have shared values like we used to. And even in the church, I find it difficult speaking to Christians. And I don't mean like we don't agree on the same doctrine. I agree with you on that. I don't think it needs to get doctrinaire. I don't think it needs to get into the nitty-gritty, but even just shared values on what we would prioritize is important in society and for uh, human flourishing. You, you can't get people to agree on these things. And so that's the challenge I find. Uh, even for someone in your position where you're trying to communicate your platform, there's a lot of assumptions in there. And um, do you find, I mean, we'll forget trying to just get out to the general public, but with the church, you find that the church struggles to even uh, resonate with what you're proposing? Not really, Mike. Uh, the fact is, I hear it all the time. Yeah, you're right. You know, my priorities, they even recognize that my priorities were right. Uh, I, I was thinking back uh, 12 years ago, we ran Dr. Alan Keyes as our first America's Party presidential candidate. And prior to that, we were trying to get him once again into the Republican process. We were right. unsuccessful. But I took I was his national political direct, director in 2000 and worked with him closely in the ensuing decade. And I recall going out to California with him in 2008, a uh, very powerful conservative organization in California called the Republican Assemblies, who've had a great impact on Republican politics in California for decades. 
And they have a every four years they have a nominating convention to see who they're going or a, an endorsement convention, you might say, to see who they're going to endorse in the Republican primaries for president. And so anyway, I went out there with Dr. Keyes and he gave the keynote address at the dinner in the evening. And he received I, I don't know if you ever heard Alan speak. Oh, yeah. Um, I love I love Dr. Uh, Keyes. Probably yep. the most. You know, the most effective orator of our time. Fantastic. Uh, Thinking back to 96 and the speeches he gave in New Hampshire that Dr. Dobson ran uh, on two ensuing days. It was so powerful. But anyway, he gave a rousing speech as he usually did to that group in the evening and got rousing standing ovation from that crowd. Okay. And it was like, oh, wow, you know, he might be able to pluck off this. You know, I mean, that's how you feel. Of course, you're a political supporter. Yeah, it's wow, exciting. This, this sure. might work. He might, tomorrow he might get nominated or he might get endorsed by them. And the next day, it wasn't even close. They, I believe they, they endorsed Mitt Romney. Okay. And so their rousing applause had nothing to do with the reality of what they did politically. You see what I'm saying? You see I the do. contrast? I do. And, and I want to know, uh, what, what do you think, why is that, though? I want to get at what, where's the disconnect? The disconnect is people believe they've bought into a utilitarian construct. Uh, uh, instead of a Christian construct, one that says, we're going to do what is right and let the Lord sort out the results. They've bought into utilitarianism. It's the greatest good for the greatest number. It's situationism. It's mm-hmm. uh, moral relativism. Whatever you want to label it, it's a godless ideology, a philosophy that the whole pro-life movement, that's all they teach anymore. They don't teach Christian principle. They teach utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. And the whole church has become infected by it to the point that— They'll sit there all day long. Pastors, theologians will write long articles justifying support for what in the same article they'll admit is wickedness. Yeah. yeah. I see it every day, and it's just galling. It's just Mm -hmm. galling. And we're never, never going to save this country as long as the Christians continue down this path. They have to break loose from this situationism and stop acting like that. And it would be so easy, uh, you know— to just simply say, no, we're not going to do that. And we're going to, we're going to do something else, you know? So it doesn't have to be me. Okay. I'm just the only guy who's bothered to step up in the last three elections. Okay. There's plenty of people out there who have the right principles and understanding. It's just, we just got to raise them up and, and, you know, not let them just sit out there and hang when they do run like so many abolitionists and Christians have done to us, frankly. You know, I I appreciate what you're saying, and I I you know I'm struck by this concept of um, I think it's rare for someone to live a non-heroic life and then in one moment become a hero. Typically, people that are heroic, and this is just me. I I can't prove this. This is just my Mike's opinion, but it's my podcast, so I'll say what I want. You know, they're they're living a certain way day by day. Like for instance. Um, I'm free to enter a marathon, but if, if the camera were a little lower, you'd see that with my pot belly, I'm probably not free to, to finish a marathon. I could enter, I could pay my fee, they'll give me the, the little car to put on my t-shirt, and when the, when the gun goes off, I'll run. And probably about 10 minutes in, I'll, I'll be done. Uh, I'll bow out. 
But if I were training every day, if I were behaving as one preparing for a marathon over a period of time, I would actually have the freedom to finish it. I have the ability to finish it. And I'd, I may even get to the point where I could f- finish it with great success. And, and, and if I wonder, part of our problem isn't so much, I mean, I think you're right. People are not pulling the lever because of this kind of utilitarianism that we're, we're, we're a free market. Uh, we've embraced Adam Smith's concept of utilitarianism. That's, uh, we're maximizing our benefit. But I almost wonder if part of it's our praxis, our daily, how do we live out our faith? And I don't know that the church, that the leaders in the church have done a good job helping or even holding us accountable to say, this is what it looks like to live your faith out on a daily basis. Because I think if we can get good at that in this society that we live in, it becomes much easier to know that I even should pull the trigger or I should say the lever, because pull the trigger has a different connotation, uh, but pull the lever for a political <laughs> candidate that, that's representing righteousness. And I think that I think the disconnect happens way earlier, which is we're just not living out our faith in ways that are meaningful on a day-to-day basis. And because of that, we're not learning how to sacrifice. We're not learning how to stand up to things and put ourselves at risk and our reputations at risk. We're fearful of what people think of us. And uh, look, we like that. We like making a quarter of a million dollars, having a big house, a couple SUVs. Like, There's nothing wrong with financial success and being wealthy. I'm not against that. But we seem to prioritize that comfort over the discomfort that comes from standing up for your faith in the little ways day by day. And by the way, I'm not trying to convince you that, Tom, or get you to say amen, but I'm just saying as you're speaking, (laughs) I almost wonder if there's a deeper weakness within within the American Christian, uh, and it leads up to this inability or unwillingness to consider doing something that's morally uh, righteous as opposed to utilitarian. Well, you know, I'm sure there's a lot I don't understand about the hearts of men. Uh, You know, you're not going to touch it. (laughs) That's fair. You know, I don't I don't know what's driving them, but my campaigns being what they are tend to illuminate where people really are. Uh, Candidacies are a litmus test. Donald Trump is a litmus test. Hmm. Okay, if you will support Donald Trump, that says something about you. Okay. If what does it you say will support, about it? It says that you don't have any principles left that you won't offer up on the altar of political perceived political expediency. That's what okay. it says to me. Fair enough. Uh, a vote for me says something else. You know, we're all as candidates, we're all exposing something. Okay, uh, if you're going to vote for Joe Biden, that tells me something about you. Okay, it it tells me you don't care about these little babies that are being killed. If you're going to support Donald Trump, it's telling me you don't care about these babies because Donald Trump represents the status quo on abortion every bit as much as Biden. In the last debate with Biden, Trump said they mentioned Roe v. Wade. He says, that's not on the ballot. We're not doing anything about that. What are you talking about? Okay, he's he's communicated it to you if you're willing to open your ears and right. actually listen to right. what these candidates say. So, right. Let me just put up uh, first. George says, Mike, I will do some marathon training with you. Thank you, George. <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't want to have to run through the mountains of Austria, though, George, where you're located. Because I, you know, I, I'll struggle just to do a flat surface, but I'll run with you any day, as long as you and I can have a stake afterwards. And then he says, I think, Tom, in a way is in a way right. Like Jordan Peterson, clean your own house room before you tell others what to do. And I, what I'm interpreting George to say is 
Tom, earlier you said you're really focused on getting the church in order, calling the church to righteousness. And what I think George is saying here is he agrees that it's right for Christians to get their act together first. Stop telling everybody else what they should do and get their own house in order. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you, George. Tom, so I, I, when you said a vote for uh, Donald Trump tells me something about you, I said, well, what is that? And um, what, what does a vote for Tom Hoefling uh, say about someone? And, and, and I want to, before I let you answer that, I, I know you're not saying, hey, I'm Tom Hoefling. I'm, I, I'm so lily white and pure. I don't hear that. I think what you're saying is what, what kind of statement is somebody making when they write your name on that ballot? Well, the first thing is they're saying that the usual political accoutrements don't matter to me because, frankly, I don't have any of those. Okay, I, I never had my own reality TV show. Okay? <laughs> I, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a billionaire. I've never had gold-plated toilet. Uh, I've never sat in the U.S. Senate. I've never been part of that club. Okay, so you're saying those things don't matter to me. You're saying, I appreciate the fact that for a couple decades, you've consistently stood for these things that nobody else is standing for that are so essential to saving the country. Uh, you know, I'd be saying I care about those things, not as opposed to the fact you're just a poor guy and out there in flyover country with a bunch of kids and no money. OK, uh, so, you know, you're saying I care about stopping this abortion holocaust, uh, you know. I care about our national security in the sense, in the ultimate sense, which is God can drop the boom on us anytime he wants. Mm -hmm. And he may well do it if we don't turn back from these things that he calls abominations. I'll just be frank about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're just saying I care about those things and, and you represent me, Tom, for all of your faults, uh, for all of your lacks. Uh, I agree with what you are saying, and I care about my kids and my grandkids and their future. I appreciate that. Thank you. Tom, what's been the hardest thing about campaigning and carrying the flag for this over the last, not just this campaign, but the last number of, it sounds like a couple decades you've been at this. What's been the toughest thing for you? Hmm. Um, been a lot more hard stuff than I would communicate in an interview like this. Uh, it, it, you know, I'm not going to say we've had an easy road. We chose a very, very difficult road. In fact, you know, I often stand, you know, feel like I'm standing in front of an onrushing train, you know, trying to yell stop. Uh, this election, the hardest thing for me has been dealing with Christians because I have seen more and more Christians slip away into the Trump camp. And, uh, you know, pastors. Uh, I've been trolled and abused by mainly two groups of people in this election. The first was some of the Black Lives Matter folks got a hold of me saying abortion is not legal. And they started to troll, troll me. And I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them hit our accounts, our social networks and things all at once. Mm -hmm. And they were mainly Amazingly, like 98% white, which was interesting, yeah. you know, mainly yeah. 22 years old and, you know, have been trained up as good little Marxists. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was unpleasant, but I dealt with that. No big problem. But the ones that have attacked me in this election that have been the most hurtful is Christian pastors, mm. Christian pastors who are supporting Donald Trump. Uh, the attacks have been merciless. They've been just downright mean. 
and uh, unchristian. Un- and some of these folks not only are Christian preachers, but they, they call themselves abolitionists as well. Hmm. So that has been to know that we've worked all these years to build up this movement, if you will, of abolitionists, to know that a good portion of them are either against us because they've bought into this utilitarian lie, this lesser of two evils nonsense, uh, or they're just sitting on their hands and they're not pitching in and helping us at all. They're just, well, it doesn't matter. Presidency doesn't matter. We're just going to go about our our little thing here that we do in our locality and none of that matters. So that's been the most hurtful to me mm. in this election and probably my entire political career. I'm wow. I'm extremely grieved by where the church is in this country right now hmm. in terms of its politics. It's, sure. It is definitely at a low point. And whether it will, will or can come back, that's above my pay grade to predict. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a prophet. So. Well, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, I, I've wrestled with this, you know, where are we going? What's going to happen? And you can lose heart. I mean, you can kind of look at the progression and just go, this thing's too far gone. But on the other hand, you can say, look, uh, and I've had to say this to myself in different areas. Uh, uh, God doesn't ask me to get involved if we're going to win. He just asked me to be faithful. And so I've exactly. got to get up and do my thing. And I think any adult, you know, you don't have to be a believer to say, I need to do what's right. Because that's what an adult does. That's what a person with a conscience, with any kind of character does. You just get up and do what's right. And I think these are the kind of times we've got to lean on that. Because if you're to look and try to prognosticate, it's it's not an easy one. And uh, But on the other hand, you can say on the fact that it doesn't matter. I just have to do what's right, and then I can look in the mirror. I want to throw a question up here. Uh, Doughboy asks, what is Tom's plan to lower the debt? Most people tell me nothing can be done about it. Now, Dobie's he's one of your supporters, so I'm sure he's heard a little bit of your literature, but I think that's a fantastic question for the audience to hear. What's your plan to lower the debt, Tom? Well, if your basement is flooding, the first thing you got to do is shut the water off. <laughs> so, I mean, this just makes sense, right? Just You got to get the water shut off. I mean, doing anything else before you do that really is rather useless. So the first thing we got to do is we've got to stop spending outside of the enumerated powers. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I have a really simple three-part test that I've used for many years and I've put out there for people to consider. I think every public policy, every bit of legislation, every bit of spending needs to, first of all, be looked at. And we need to ask the question, is it moral? Okay, is it moral? Mm -hmm. The second question is, if it's moral... Okay, if it's not moral, forget it. Just throw it out. We need to get rid of it. Okay. If you, the second question is, is it constitutional? Okay. If it's not constitutional, throw it out. Mm-hmm. If it's not, if it's moral and constitutional, the last question is, is it necessary? Is it absolutely necessary? Now, if it meets all three criteria, that's fine. Uh, then we should implement it in the most efficient. Uh, non-invasive way that we possibly can, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, believe me, such a test is not being applied right now. Uh, <laughs> l- let's take, let's take, let's take uh, the Department of Education for an example, okay? Uh, is it moral to educate children? Of course it is. We have an obligation as parents to educate our children, Um Is it constitutional for the federal government to be involved in educating our children? Absolutely not. 
the, the U.S. Department of Education when it was brought into existence in 1979 uh, by Carter and people like Newt Gingrich, who was in Congress, mm-hmm. and people like that, is completely unconstitutional. It's uh, flushing you know, huge amounts of money down the drain. So get rid of it. It's moral to educate our children. We need to do that. But that's our responsibility. It's not the federal government's responsibility. Yeah, and I would make the argument it's it's immoral, potentially immoral, for the state, the federal government, or any government Absolutely. to be educating the children. That's you're usurping the role and the and the function of the family, which undermines the fabric of society. You you know, our society is not based on individuals, it's based on the family. That's the basic you you can't have a society based on individuals because one person doesn't make a society. But a family does. Anyway, I interrupted you, Absolutely. so you're going through the three points, but I'm, no, I, I'm with you. Know, you. I, I love using education. I, we're homeschoolers. and we've Same been, here. We were homeschoolers. I mean, ours are graduated, back. but yep. My wife is a second-generation homeschooler. Oh, wow. uh, so we helped restore uh, homeschooling and private education freedom here in our state. It's actually mm-hmm. one area where we were able to turn back the clock and restore liberty here in our state, thanks to a few good legislators. So uh, I'm not against education. I just, uh, God gave us as parents that responsibility. Yes. Uh, I don't have a right to force somebody else to give me their money to educate my children. I just don't. That's right. So, uh, I mean, there are plenty of other examples. Let's take the, the, the defense budget. Okay. Is it, is it moral to defend the country? Of course it is. That's why we have the federal government is to provide for our defense or common defense. Uh, is it constitutional? Absolutely. Is it necessary? Absolutely. Could we do it better? Could we do it cheaper? Absolutely. I mean, the Pentagon budget is absolutely, you know, uh, full of all kinds of things that could be cut out. You know, it just could. It's, it's huge. Uh, so this is what we need to do. So sure. you stop, you, you stop, the flow. You stop yep. the basement from filling up. You shut off the valve. You get back within the enumerated powers, and then you start to pay the debt off. I Just mean, like that's a all you can do. Family with some credit cards, right? You chip away. You yeah, stop unless, spending. Unless you, you start wanna, chipping you away. Know, unless you want to abandon the full faith and credit of the United States, which would yeah. be a very, very bad idea. George Washington and Alexander Hamilton might get up out of the grave and come haunt you <laughs> if you do that. But we're well on the way to doing that. This is this is what gets me is people say, oh, you can't win. I need to win because what I'm saying is so essential. The Congressional Budget Office has been telling us for years, we are nearing insolvency as a country. We are bankrupt, but we're nearing insolvency. Uh, They were saying a couple of years ago, by 2025, the entire budget would have to go to uh, so-called entitled uh, New Deal and Great Society entitlement programs and interest on the debt. That leaves nothing left for anything that was, else. But that was pre-COVID nineteen relief packages. Exactly. Too. Yeah. Exactly. That was before Donald Trump just ran up another seven trillion right. with a few trillion more to come, probably in the Absolutely. Next weeks. Yeah, you know, so, Tom, what I'm struck by stuff. too. I pushed you, you know, earlier, and I want to get to a question by Pauline Weinberger in a second here, but I pushed you, hey, you know, this utilitarianism, you know, you're not going to win. Why do you do this? You're not going to win. Let's just face it. Um, on the other hand, political movements, 
take someone brave enough to stand up and just say, I'm not taking this anymore. And often that person might be viewed as kooky or like, why is this guy doing it? Or he's just a one voice in the wind. It's amazing how 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, I mean, it's amazing how over time, if those people stand strong with what they believe, you start to draw people to you, you get momentum. You don't have to have 51% of the country to win. You, you need, you thing need you a, a, an active minority to really impact the fabric of any society. Uh, and that, this is what Black Lives Matter is hoping. They don't need to have the majority of the country in their back pocket or even as members. They just have to have a, a, a powerful, vocal, visible enough minority. The Bolsheviks in, Soviet, in, in Russia, in the Tsarist Russia, they overthrew a government. They were not the minority, or they were not the majority, I meant to say. So I'm not trying to liken you with BLM and the Bolsheviks, by the way, but my point well, being... thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're one of the good guys, but my point being, yeah, it's easy to go, why is this guy running? He's not going to win. But on the other hand, you've got to start a movement somehow. And to your point that I need to win because the country is not sustainable on the track and the path, both from a murdering the innocent, you know, a moral stance and just the way we're spending money, et cetera, it's just not sustainable. And uh, so, that, so uh, your point is well taken. I really appreciate, you know, what you're doing. Can, and I know I went a little long. Let me just bring in Pauline real quick. She wants to know, what does Tom say to the idea that if he draws votes away from Trump, Biden wins, and then we're all screwed? Splitting, uh, and she said splitting the vote. Now, by the way, Pauline's uh, based out of Calgary, Canada, so she won't be casting a vote in our election, but she's pretty, she pays close attention to the American politics. Uh, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that, Tom? I mean, we touched on this already, but just for Pauline's sake. Well, the left in our country, and I know in Canada as well, has a real sense of entitlement to our money, okay? Uh, Trump supporters have a real sense of entitlement to our votes, okay? Drawing votes away, uh, you know, that implicit in that is it's their vote somehow. It's not their vote. Uh, it's my vote. I am not giving my vote to Donald Trump. I'm not, there's no drawing away from anything. I'm simply not going to vote for him, okay? I'm not going to vote for a guy who thinks it's okay to kill some classifications of babies and then call himself pro-life. Okay, I'm not going to support the guy who thinks it's okay to give billions of dollars to Planned Parenthood while telling pro-lifers I'm the most pro-life president in history, Okay. I'm not going to support that. I'm not going to support a guy. You know, I won't even go into all of his personal things, mm -hmm. which, I mean, we could be here for a week just going over <laughs> the horrible, horrible things. How can somebody like that get elected in this country? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. How can Christians support a man? Uh, if you're a Christian or whether even if you're not, go open a Bible, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and read the first nine verses and tell me that every bad human characteristic that's listed there uh, for how men will be in the last days doesn't apply to the incumbent. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. and, and, and we're instructed to, to uh, flee away from people. To like shoo that. those people. They have yeah. nothing to yeah. do. Yeah, have nothing to do with somebody. If, we, if we're not even supposed to have anything to do with people like that, do you think the Lord is happy with us making them the most powerful person on the planet? Now, sometimes, I, I just, sometimes those kinds of people become the most amazing Christians, but, but like, I'm thinking of the Apostle Paul, but he repented and he publicly repented of his previous behavior. There was a conversion. This, this wasn't was a, a man conversion. that... 
Paul was never like Trump. No, okay? I, I know. No but my point is, the last my point person is, like Trump was named Nero. Okay. But but even so, let's say a guy like Nero accepted Christ. Yeah. If he continued acting like Nero, you'd be pretty suspect. But if he came out and said, "I've been transformed. I, uh, woe is me. I mean, I'm ashamed of what I've done. I'm I'm humbling myself. That I I admit to my past sins and I thank God for for forgiving me for them." Two things. Yeah. Two things. Number one, Trump has never done that. He's done the exact well, that's opposite. That's my point. He said, that's my point. He said, "I don't repent." Okay. And the second thing, even if he was sincere. Uh, as a Christian New Testament principle, you don't lay hands suddenly on any man. If there is a new convert, right. you don't suddenly put him in charge of the world. He right. has to be tried over the course of time to see if what he's yeah. doing is sincere and real. So, yeah. so he fails on that point. No, too, I'm agreeing with you. I'm yeah. agreeing with you. I mean, I'm just putting that out there to make that point that you could at least make an argument for Trump if he came out humbly and said, "Hey, look, I, I'm really ashamed of my past life, but here I'm a new man." You, at least. That's not in Trump's. I mean, the word "humble." You just never think of humble and Trump together. It's just not. Yeah, there. Mike. Mike, look. You know that this whole interview. I haven't been sitting here attacking Trump's character. No, flaws, no, no, no. Okay, no. that's not what this is about. I, my main focus is on policy. Okay, so look, Trump is so far beyond the pale to me that it's not even funny. But guess what? Mike Pence is beyond the pale. Yeah, okay. George, George just asked this question, uh, and please keep going, Tom. He said, how can Pence be vice president of Trump? That's crazy to me. This is George asking this. Okay, but he can because he has no principles either. This is, this is the point that I want to make. Mike Pence, Ted Cruz, all of the other pro-life Republicans, they're all a bunch of judicial supremacists to a man. Okay, they are all abortion regulationists. They continue to support these immoral, unconstitutional bills that, in effect, end with, and then you can kill the baby as long as you do it by our rules. Okay, so look, as far beyond the pale as Trump is, just getting rid of Trump isn't going to solve our problem in terms of public policy. We have to completely junk uh, the Republican Party's whole game, their whole scheme, because it's getting us nowhere and it can get us nowhere. It, it just has us like hamsters on a hamster wheel. You know, just run around. We'll give you some more moldy breadcrumbs. You know, look, oh, look, we're Christians. We'll give you the Johnson Amendment, even though they never actually do. But, you know, who cares about the Johnson Amendment? Yeah. You know, that only affects your big time Christian political ministry. OK, mm -hmm. I don't care. What I want to I, I want to see a real change that you know says we demand an end to this Holocaust. Yeah. You know we demand uh, that these judges who get outside of their legitimate uh, sphere be removed. And if they're not being removed, we demand that they be ignored sure. and go about keeping your own oath. That's that's what we need to be doing. Not playing these mamby pamby Republican games from now until God drops His hammer on us. Tom, I asked you earlier what the toughest thing has been so far, and you elaborated a little bit. I'll ask you the other question, which is, what have you been most uh, proud of, or what's what's been the biggest win for you? As you look at the work that you're doing, you're laying your hand to the plow. It's hard work. Um, you know, you come under personal attack and so on. It's got to take a strain on your your family, I'm imagining, and it's there's, there's a sacrifice involved in this. What are you most proud of or, or what's been the, the, the kind of the biggest win for you through all of this? 
Well, again, it's what I said earlier. It comes back to individual successes. When I have a pastor who gave me a really rough time, you know, and pushed me around and, you know, said all the usual pro-lifey things that people say and got mad at me and everything and then stomps off, so to speak. And then a week later comes back and says, says, you know, I was wrong. God convicted me. You were absolutely right. I'm sorry I did that. And, uh, you know, I get it now. The light went on. Okay. That's the biggest satisfaction I can have when all of a sudden I'm around the internet and I see people, you know, understanding this, how destructive this fallacy of judicial supremacy really is to our entire form of government. When I see people getting it, you know, that's what makes it worthwhile. And, you know, like you said, it gets me out of bed in the morning. So Mm. I appreciate that. Well, as we're wrapping up here, uh, what can my viewers and listeners to the podcast do if they want to get involved, if they want to support you, if they want to learn more, I put, I put your campaign, the Tom Hoefling 2020.com link in the description to the video here on YouTube. But what are some things people can do if they want to connect with you or get involved in the work you're doing? Well, you know, we'd like them to sign up at the website. Of course, we have a volunteer link at TomHofling2020.com. We're still looking for a few electors in a couple states. I think Missouri, Wisconsin, Nebraska, a couple places. There's still a little bit of house cleaning to finish up our ballot access efforts this year. So uh, we always want people to sign up so that uh, we can reach them and we can talk to them. Uh, I have a uh, number of accounts on Facebook. Thomas Hofling is my main account now. I was deplatformed on my main account about two weeks ago, by the way, oh, no. by Facebook, which is a whole nother story. Um, but, you know, get, get into a position where you can connect with us and we can talk. If you go to selfgovernment.us or tomhofling.com, my personal blog and archive, there's right on the right hand side, you'll find a We get together twice a week on Tuesday and Thursday night. We've been doing this for over 13 years. Twice a week, we get on a conference line. People call in, and I answer any questions people have. We talk about anything people want to talk about, and uh, it's just access you have to me. But I'd like to have access to you, too, so we can hook up and we can get together. That's, That's how eventually you turn a country around, is you organize and you we're trying to organize what I would call the salt and the light in this country, the, the people who are the salt of the earth. And those are the people that we're trying to, you know, get them to run for office themselves, uh, get them to organize where they live and in their states and to join with us in trying to turn the whole country around. So yeah. sign up at our websites, I guess, is the, the best thing. And then come visit us on the conference calls we have twice a week. I uh, appreciate that. And, and just for the listeners, so I mentioned YouTube folks, uh, the link to Tom's uh, campaign site is in the description. But for listeners, you spell Tom's name, it's T-O-M or T-H-O-M-A-S, but his surname, his last name is spelled H-O-E-F-L-I-N-G, H-O-E-F-L-I-N-G. So if you even Google Tom Hofling, you're going to see all these links pop up that he's referring to. Or you can, of course, search for him on Facebook and connect there. It's been a really fantastic discussion, Tom. I mean, I, I could just keep going, but we're a good half hour and a half in, and I want to respect right. your time. You know, as we close, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you were hoping to talk about? Or is there a closing thought that you wanted to share with the audience? Well, it all comes down, you know, if you go read our Constitution 
And there's this thing on the front end of it that people call the preamble, but it's not called that by the Constitution. It's actually the Constitution's statement of purpose. You know, absorb what is in that preamble. And the ultimate uh, stated purpose of our Constitution is to secure the blessings of liberty to our posterity. So we need millions of Americans who actually care about their own children, their own grandchildren, their own great-grandchildren, to put their own self-interest aside and clean up this mess. Uh, you know, we received a free country from our forebears. We have an obligation to our posterity to deliver one to them. So mm -hmm. let's just do that. Uh, we, we have the ability. All we lack now is the will. And we just need to find that will, pray, join together. We can, we can, we can get this done. Amen. Well, Tom, thank you. First of all, thank you for being a guest. This was just a really great experience for me as a host. And I, and I think the audience got a lot out of the discussion. And I think you asked a lot of fantastic and challenging questions. Uh, now, I'm supposed to ask you questions, but I think your responses, <laughs> I think your positions, I think your reason for doing this uh, evoke questions within all of us as we're thinking through what you're saying and, and asking ourselves, you know, where we fall in these issues. So I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Appreciate your time. I want to wish you the best. I, I think the work Thank that you. you're doing, um, I know there's a cost. I just, I don't know you, but I just know there's a cost to doing it on a personal level. And uh, my prayer for you is that, that you're, um, that you are uh, full of grace and that you have strength and that, uh, and that the Lord uh, is got you guys covered because I think it's hard work, but I'm grateful for it. And I do wish you the best. I really Thank appreciate you. what you're doing. And for my audience listening, if you're either watching here in the live stream or you're listening to the podcast, uh, this is The Currency. I'm your host, Mike Gast, and we're going to wrap up here. If you haven't already, go check out the podcast. You can catch us on Apple, Spotify, Google, uh, anywhere that fine quality podcasts are provided, you will find The Currency. Hit that subscribe button, leave a comment. And uh, if you enjoyed this discussion, you want to be part of the live stream, just join us every Sunday, different times, usually around 3, 4 in the afternoon. But join us, jump in. There's a great conversation going on right now on uh, things that Tom's been talking about. And uh, don't forget, I love you guys, and I will catch you in the next episode.